Bringing criminals to justice can be a very dark business, and the constant exposure to the bleak circumstances can take a psychological toll. On this week's episode, we're doing something a little different. Today, I'm going to be talking to a comedian and true crime superfan, Raj Sharma. We'll be exploring the use of humour as a defence mechanism and the role it plays in keeping us sane in the face of adversity. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. When you're on the road a lot and you, you have downtime, I have a ritual of when I walk into every hotel, it's the same thing. I, the blackout curtains go, and then uh, I usually turn on CNN. Uh, and then Investigation Discovery launched uh, the ID channel, and that just was the greatest thing ever. Because you get inside the mind of people like yourself that hunt these people down and track these people down, and you can get into the psyche of the people that do these things. Um, so that's always been fun for for me to just kind of sit back and take that in, um, especially before going to a show. Kind of, it sounds weird that it, it can clear your mind, but I get to watch other people do their job uh, before I go do mine. So it kind of keeps me out of my headspace. So obviously, you do use humor in all of your work. Yeah. Do you use it in your real life? Are there situations where that's the savior for you? Yeah, that's kind of the go-to uh, when I find myself in in a stressful situation or uh, when I'm in a situation that is heavier. Like I'm the guy that has to say something to, to try to make the room laugh because otherwise I will literally go insane. Uh, and it started off as a kid. I was, you know, like we would talk about uh, in, in this day and age, bullying has become a big topic, and I and I have a very odd stance on on it, where I'm like, you know, bullies um, make the world go round in a sense because it, there's adversity, and that's what I faced, and and I and I equate this to if there was no Lex Luthor, there would be no need for Superman, and if there was no Joker, there would be no reason for Batman. So uh, every one of my bullies was a Lex Luthor or a Joker, and. Uh, I remember being, as a kid, I, my, you know, my parents, I was telling you, uh, you know, you're from, from uh, the UK. My parents moved from, uh, my parents met in London. They both at separate times moved from India uh, to London. They met there where they faced a lot of racism from skinheads. So they decided what they were going to do was uh, pack up their family and move to Texas. And um, my vegetarian uh, peaceful resistance... Hindu Brahmin parents decided Texas was the spot for us. We were the only Indian family in this neighborhood and learned very early on that there's strength in numbers. Right. You know, and that's what we lacked. Uh, it was just me and uh, my older brother. And that was it for a very long time before other Indian families sort of moved into the, uh, to the area. I was always, uh, I always had the gift of gab. I was always talking. My mother used to say this, that I talk too much. She used to say, you know, you talk too much. That's your problem. You talk too much. One day I hope they give you a job where they pay you to talk. And now here we are. But I always had that thing. And I, and I found it's very difficult. I say, I've said it before. It's very difficult. It takes a special kind of person 
to punch somebody when they're laughing. Like that's a certain that's a sociopath. Like if you're still giggling and can still hurt the person that's making you laugh, you're kind of odd. Right. Um, so I found I found using humor was my way of because I couldn't fight. I was really really small. Uh, I was a really small kid, and I was ahead of everybody in the sense that I was three years old when I was reading and writing. I was walking at seven months, and so I was way ahead of the curve. And so they didn't know what to do with me. So let's go ahead and put this kid who's four years old in kindergarten. So I was so I was a year and a half younger and my birthday was in October. And here the school system is after a certain day in September, like you have to wait the next year. Well they didn't know what to do with me because I was already I was already reading books and writing at three. And so pre K wasn't any good to me. So I went in and now here's this really small Indian kid that's smarter than you. So everybody's going to now focus their anger because I would I would mess up the curve for anything. Like if it was a, you know, Indians naturally are very good at spelling. So if it was like, you know, the, the spelling stuff in school, or if it was math or if it was science or whatever, I was already like, already got it. Like I didn't have to do the, put the work in my head. I could just write the answer down. Well, now you're going to piss off a lot of people. So I would try to make up stories and create situations and a lot of sketch and a lot of voices. Uh, and my dad, I remember, would get his hair cut at this, uh, this place in Mesquite, Texas. That's where I grew up, in this small like country barber shop. And I still remember it had like fake wood paneling with like deer on the paneling. And it just it smelled like uh, cigarettes and uh, Barbasol, like the foam shaving cream is what it smelled like. I can still smell it. But they had the Reader's Digest, and my dad would borrow it, as he would say. Uh, he would never return what he borrowed, but he would steal the Reader's Digest. I guess to look sophisticated at home, because they didn't have a lot of money, so let's just... So when people came over, it's like, oh, you have the Reader's Digest. Like, they have, like, you can subscribe. <laughs> they, they got subscription money. <laughs> and they just didn't turn it over to the back to see the barbershop's address. But... I would memorize the jokes. If you remember the Reader's Digest, they had jokes in the back. So I would memorize these jokes and kind of turn them into, with my own little flair, and go back to school the next day. And if somebody started bullying me or started harassing me, I would just kind of start throwing out jokes. And then I found this out at the age of nine is, and this is the key to comedy, I tell this to people all the time, write to make women laugh. Because if women laugh, men will laugh. If you look at an audience, when you have an audience situation, you all my mind always goes to, and I'm not malicious in any way, I'm not vulgar or anything like that, but my goal is to make the woman that's sitting next to you laugh because it kind of forces you to laugh. If you're especially like if you think about it, if you're on a date and the girl next to you is laughing and you're not, she's judging your sense of humor. She's judging you as as a date. Like, oh my gosh, this guy's not laughing at the stuff I'm laughing at. So automatically I win. If I can get the women on my side, and I learned this at nine, uh, when uh, these you know guys were starting to starting to girls weren't all gross now, so they were starting to guy there was guys that started liking these girls in nine, ten, eleven, twelve, whatever, and I would make friends with the girls by doing cartoon voices and uh, all kinds of like goofy like anything that I could do to make them laugh, and it made the guys less apt to want to beat me up or bully me because it would make those girls mad and they liked those girls so in turn they had to like me because I was kind of like the conduit to their uh to their affection so I still look at it that way when I'm on stage and you're on a date I'm I'm gonna make you look good in front of her 
And so every situation I remember, uh, and this is like one of those moments that stands out, like when people go, so when did you want to be a comic? My, a family friend uh, passed away. My mother's friend uh, died in a car accident. And I was, we were at the funeral and we we're just being, you know, very good Hindu boys and just standing there very stoic. And I could not look at anybody's face because the way that people were crying was making me laugh. And I couldn't help it because everybody's face was contorting weird and everybody had a different sound and there's somebody that's louder than the other, like whatever it was. So I had to sit outside. Like they physically moved me outside and I just sat and had to look through the glass and I was laughing my ass off the entire time. And my mom was like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, how are you guys not seeing this? So I just took that through every phase of my life and it sounds, it is a defense mechanism. Whatever situations get too close or too personal or too heavy, I will automatically hit the joke button uh, because that just makes things easier for me. Uh, and that's why a tremendous amount of us are in therapy. So <laughs> I'm like, well, because that's the only way we know how to cope is to tell a joke and not everybody gets the punchline. So, right. and I can only imagine that being tenfold, like with you needing, doing what you do, needing humor to not, I don't know if it's a defense mechanism or if it's just to alleviate the pressure in your brain because of what you see and what you do and what you have to watch prior to uh, or have, have to know, like the knowledge that you have prior to investigating someone or, or, or sex trafficked child or whatever. And then seeing things that you have to see on the way to saving the day. It's the same as in, in, in stand-up comedy and in, in humor in general is when you're on stage, everybody sees the finished joke. Nobody realized what I went through to get there, which is a very small thing compared to what you do. But nobody sees that when I'm talking about there's, a, I have a great joke about who was the disciplinarian in your family. I said, you know, my mother used to, I said, who used to get beat? And now you can't use the term beat anymore. It's who got spanked or who was disciplined. So you have to change it around. But it was my mom. My mom was a disciplinarian. My mother suffered from PTSD. She was in the, she was seven years old when the war between India and Pakistan happened. So she was, uh, her, she lost two sisters in the war. They lost their house. I mean, they had to move from what is now uh, Pakistan to India. She was stabbed in both knees by Pakistani soldiers and left to die. She saved herself and all that, but she suffered from PTSD. So there was a trigger that you didn't know what it was, but she would start disciplining us, if that's what you want to call it. It could be over anything. But I just found humor in the way that, like, it was like, who got beaten? What was, uh, what was their weapon of choice? Uh, and I would do that, but that's, Everybody loves the payoff. The end of that joke, every I gets an applause break, but nobody sees that it was actually what I had to go through to get to that joke. So I'll reverse the question: like you do what you do, and no one sees how you have to get there to see the payoff of what you do. So in what situations, like, do you use humor? Like, where does it come in? Is it dirt when you're staking someone out, or is it when? Is it at the end of the day when you're trying to have uh, to decompress or have a you know have a drink and try to figure out what you saw that day and process it in your mind? Like, how does that work for you? We could be, and I'll go back to when I was policing. We we could go to a, a murder scene, and obviously, a murder scene is no one ever wants to go there. But we literally would make a joke about the murder scene 
and then we do our job. But we had to because, um, yeah, and, and as, as you said, it's not always everybody's ideal. And sometimes we would say things that would not, we know would not be appropriate in the outside world. And, you know, we had to be mindful of that, just like you're saying, you had to be mindful of what you say. That's what bugs me about this whole, the whole, you have to be mindful thing. You're in your environment and you're with people that have to see the same thing you see, have to deal with the same thing you deal with. But I think I think the thing is that because we do it daily, um, I mean, I don't go to a murder scene anymore daily, but um, because we do this daily and maybe get a little bit blasé and for the outside world, it's something that they only get to have a look from the outside in. So therefore, murder, rape, abuse, everything is horrendous and no one wants it to happen to anyone, let alone to themselves. So they see it for a moment and it's that moment of shock horror, whereas we're, okay, we we see it for that moment as investigators, police officers, whoever we are in that role. But then once we've seen it for that second, we then have to get into it to to make the results, the results, you know, whether that's a year's investigation or going to tell someone that they're, son has been killed in a car accident. I mean, that's one of the most horrendous jobs I have ever had in my life is going to see a family. So you have to process on two different levels. You have to process one for yourself, what you just walked into, and then turn that off and then go into how do I process solving this now? And then even a third process of how do I inform the people? So it's like you become last in the situation. Yeah. And there's an example that I have when I was policing and it was horrific. I had to go and tell someone that their 17 year old had committed suicide and he did it. He did it in a very public way. And so I'm, I'm a young police rookie. I have no idea. You know, when I joined the police at 18, I thought I was the shit. Like I thought I was brilliant. Yeah. Um, now yeah. I look back and I'm like, what the hell were you doing at 18? You know, I remember going to a domestic and, and the guy's like, what do you know about marriage? And I'm like, um, actually don't know anything. You're right. What I do know is you can't hit your wife. That's the, that's the only bit I know. I don't know the complexities <laughs> of it, but this, this particular incident, I had to go, I think it was my first telling someone that they're a family member and I wasn't alone because I was so young but I went to tell a mom and it was really sad because the family had reported this kid missing by the time we got to him he had blown his head off with a shotgun so there was no IDing him but we put two and two together very quickly because he'd been reported missing dad's gun was missing and we're suddenly we have this clearly young kid and he has gone to the top of a church tower and with with the gun in a roll of wallpaper and blown his head off, which in in a beautiful country English village was not fun. And I happened to be the first at the scene. Yeah. So I go to tell the mom, and obviously I'm it's I can't ever and probably will never be able to describe the horrific nature of telling someone that news. But you know, and and as a as a member of public, you always say you don't want to get the knock on the door. And I'm telling you, a police knock telling you someone's died in your family is very distinctive. In fact, my kids, we joke about it now. I'll go somewhere and I'll knock and, and Amy, 
Weymouth say, oh, they've got the police knock. She's in a bad mood and it might be the dressmaker or, you know, it's nothing. <laughs> um, but yeah. I went to this and told the family as sympathetically, and, and that's one thing that I do really pride myself on is my empathy and my ability to communicate with other people. And I have been through loss, and this is something we'll talk about in a minute, but I just got a slap in the face off the mum, straight out slap. Now, in a different circumstances, that would be a, a police assault and she'd have been handcuffed. But we understood that this was a, a grief moment and it wasn't meant at me. It was meant at the person who was telling her her son was dead because for that instant, she was not going to believe it. And obviously, we do what we need to do. And, and, and it, was a, it was a good one as well. I <laughs> felt a little bit sore. Um, and we get back to the police station. And, you know, my crewmate's like, yeah, Nina got slapped. And then it's, you know, it turned into, well, I mean, you look at that face, you'd want to slap her, right? You know, oh, it, was yeah, all, yeah, it yeah. all became the joke thing. It was horrendous. It was the most horrendous thing. And for many days, it was like, uh, has anyone slapped you today? And it, it became this ongoing joke. It wasn't meant maliciously to me. It just, it was such a horrendous circumstances that we needed a release. Yeah, we needed somewhere yeah, to Yeah, that's, that's funny. And I don't think people understand this. They were doing that to, to make it better for you. Right. It sounds like it's not. If you, if you were to tell the world that whole thing, it doesn't sound like it. But that's like, come here, buddy. Like that's the that's the that's the you know rubbing on the head like ah come here who got slapped yeah. you did, and it was like hey don't don't take don't take it personal it happens, and so we're gonna because and so you don't take it personally from here on out we're just gonna keep making jokes about it. And how does one decide at eighteen they're gonna be a police officer? Yeah, and you look at your kids now. I look at my twenty two year old son and I'm like, I mean the fact he was I was doing that and it's it's crazy but. One of the, I, I have a great story I do want to share. And I'm going to admit right now for the first time that I have um, three big fears in my life. Spiders. Uh-oh. Big time. Really? Needles. But I have a tattoo, so I'm not sure how that worked. I think I was probably drunk at the time. And dead bodies. Now, that sounds ridiculous, but for a police officer, at 18, I'd never seen a dead body. And I went through a week of, sadly, sudden deaths and suicides and again at 18 it's like I'm not I can't deal with this I haven't dealt with this yeah and I realized it was a proper phobia about a dead body and I really was struggling to the point where that there's two points in my police career that I really nearly left and that was one of them I went to another house it was a old lady and she hadn't been seen by the neighbors and again, why is it that neighbours always ring the police at 2 a.m. in the morning when they've not seen their neighbour for 10 days? Yeah, yeah. And so we have to go break into the house and, you know, the fire's on and unfortunately the person's deceased and it's not pleasant. So of this particular week of having all of these incidents to go to, we got the 2 a.m. call and I'm like, I can't do this. I really can't. And I remember sitting in my car with my crewmate who was amazing and I'm crying. I'm not, I'm not noisy crying I've just got tears falling down my face and I was like I can't do this I, I know what's going to be in that house can't deal with it so they were very kind to me and they they saw that this was a huge issue so my sergeant took me off and and I said look I have to get over this because I can't be a police officer and not go to see a dead body it's it's part of the job yeah and so they put together a plan 
again, great training from the British police, but they put together a plan where I had to go to the mortuary. Well, every time I went to the mortuary, again, just crying, shaking, and I'm and I know that I'm going to go see a dead body, and it's that in my mind I can't deal with. But this went on for a number of months, so I had to go to the mortuary, and I had to. I didn't have to um, watch them do anything. I just had to look at a dead body, and then I had to touch a dead body. And it, I, I mean, it sounds really bizarre, but it was a very big event for me. Sure. And and if anyone has a fear, it's a proper fear. And then it came to the point where they were like, okay, well, you're going to actually pull the the body out of the freezer and then you, you know, in your own time. So I'm like, okay, and I'm deep breaths. So I'm not sure I can do this. Yes, you can. We've got to this point. And this is this is months, not not <laughs> of going every week. So I get the I get the freezer and I pull it out and the body goes, Rah! Oh my god! And it, and I was I just didn't for a split second. I'm like, what? This person's not dead. What's what's happening? And it was one of my police colleagues. And they and then everyone starts laughing around me. And it's like, hey, yay! And I'm like, okay. And at that point, bizarrely, was the point I can deal with a dead body. And I've been accepted by these guys for being weak because that's how you look at it when you have a phobia. It's a, it's irrational and it's weakness. But that was their way of using humor to get me through what potentially could have stopped my career really early. I, I, that is, I, w- I was hoping in the movie that is my mind that that's how it works is when you did that, it was just somebody, like, I, I just wanted it to be somebody not dead. And then you said that and I was like, yes, that is so great. Uh, that's something we would do. Like, <laughs> as comics, that's something we would, that's not in a, and just a, <laughs> and this is what I love about you is that you find that, to be an ir- irrational phobia, but dead dead bodies don't do anything. It's the it's the ones that are alive that you need to worry about. You know that's that's the thing. So what is the fear? It's that's why it's irrational. It's an irrational fear because it's what is it going? What's it? I'm not going to get hurt. It's well, what are you scared of? Just just seeing somebody dead. Oh, seeing. Okay, the visual. Okay, the visual. Okay, yeah. that makes okay. Okay, I thought you were just like they're gonna wake up and it's gonna be like the thriller video, uh, and it's just everyone's just gonna start dancing all of a sudden. Like <laughs> no, it's it's just yeah, it's the fear of seeing someone dead. But humor was was a huge a huge help for me. Yeah, over that particular issue, and as my police career went on, it was used a lot. And it, operations that we do, you know. We're, we can be on a, on a stakeout, using the American term, but we can be looking at a target. I mean, surveillance can be the most boring thing that you've ever done in your life because you can sit there for 16 hours and then you've got the issue being a female, not being able to go to the bathroom, and that's never fun. But then when it happens, you, you literally, it's it's like a cold spring because you've got to react and, you've, and your adrenaline goes from zero to 100 in a second. But in the, in the downtime, Humor again is really important, but it's it's humor to keep the morale going because we've sat there for sixteen hours. Sure. So you know, I have one operative, and we'll we'll call his his mom and sister to on a FaceTime call because we know that they'll be hilarious and make us laugh. But it, it's it's like, the, but the minute that we need to react, we need to react, and so we have to try and get to, into the emotions of adrenaline and potential danger and. And it's an interesting balance when 
when that happens. And then we'll go back to the humor or the, you know, the blame. We go into the blame game of who lost him or whatever and what, what we should or shouldn't do. But. Yeah, I think that would be I think that would be an automatic shutoff, right? Like if you're joking and then what you're what you're there like because like you're saying it's for the morale it's to kill for lack of a better term uh but it's to kill the time in between it's to kill the monotony yeah like if if you're just sitting in a car you can only listen to so much classic rock or you can only listen to so much whatever let me ask you this because this happens with us uh as as comedians we'll we'll be talking amongst each other and everybody's laughing joking now you got to go on stage and do the the set and then you come off and you pick up right back where that joke left off when before you went to go on stage. Do you guys do that? Because that would be hilarious. Yeah, on occasions we do. I mean, other times it's yeah, it's moving on from from that. But one question I want to ask you is: so if you you get a dark subject, so we'll talk about crime because I know that you love your crime. And when you do a joke about a dark subject like that, is it something that you know you make a joke of it and everyone's ha ha that's funny? But is it something that in your mind you are processing as being a crime? And there are you know issues not issues for you but it's something that you're processing in a different way to what your audience is seeing because that's sometimes how I feel yes so in the world that we live in if you can't understand why people like you and I or why an audience in general needs to have a little bit of levity in dark situations like I don't know I don't know what you watch I don't know what world you live in because uh, as as dark as murders are, or you deal with sex trafficked children, like, what are you watching that you don't realize that that exists in the world? And then if you do acknowledge that it does, to to not understand why humor is necessary at the end of the day, it's like a stiff drink. It's how you uh, decompress. And I think what we've done is we've gone, oh, well, that you can't talk about that anymore. Well, what I'm you live it. You have to see this daily. Despite the difference in myself and Roger's professional backgrounds, there's no denying the need for humour in what we do. Whether it's to avoid danger on the schoolyard, or as a release when facing a dead body for the first time, whether we're aware of it or not, it's a device to help us deflect and a necessary defence mechanism that can help preserve our sanity. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Siren. Siren.